We're teaching a series on um, spiritual gifts, and um, we usually start off from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, where it says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, reading from the King James, it says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you to be ignorant. The word gifts is in italics, which always means that the translators add it. Whenever you find a word in italics in the King James, it means it's not in the original text, and the translators added it in there for our uh, in an attempt to help our understanding. For the most part, I think they do a real good job with it, but in this case, uh, I think they've done us a little bit of a disservice because um, uh, the word spiritual is in the plural in the original Greek. It's the word spirituals, and you could well understand if the, if the verse read, Now concerning spirituals, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. That doesn't make sense to anybody. Nobody would know what that's talking about. And that's why the translators tried to put something in there to help us. But the word spirituals means things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost. Now, the disservice that uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 does by uh, the, the translators did by adding the word gifts is it leaves the impression that everything in the chapter is, uh, is talking about or related to spiritual gifts, and it's not. But everything in chapter 12 is related to things pertaining to the Holy Ghost. And he talks about three things specifically in the chapter. The first thing is spiritual gifts, the nine manifestations of the Spirit. The second thing is the body of Christ. Have you ever thought about it? The body of Christ is just as supernatural in God's estimation and in God's eyes as manifestations of the Spirit. We don't think like that, do we? But God does. Well, the third thing that he talks about in that chapter, first is spiritual gifts, second is the body of Christ working together. And then the third thing that he talks about in that chapter is ministry gifts or offices stated in the church. All of those things are pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost. Now, in the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians, he gives us a list of nine manifestations of the Spirit or what we commonly call nine gifts. And of those nine, three of them reveal something, the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, and discerning of spirits. Three of them do something, or there can be called the power gifts, gift of faith, working of miracles, and uh, gifts of healings. And then three of them say something, or are the vocal gifts, prophecy, diverse kinds of tongues, and interpretation of tongues. Now, last week, if you were with us, and if you remember, we talked about working of miracles, and uh, I want to talk about that a little bit more this morning. I, I thought I was through with it, but... Um, I've got a witness in my heart that I, I didn't get across some things that, that I think the Lord wants us to, to see and understand about that. Now, working of miracles is very simply defined, or a miracle is very simply defined, as divine intervention into the ordinary course of nature. Now, we use the word miracle in all kinds of ways inappropriately, uh, inappropriately according to the Bible definition in our natural speech. There are miracle fabrics, miracle detergents, uh, sunsets and sunrises are called miracles of nature. Uh, the birth of a baby is called the miracle of, a, of, of childbirth. But really all those things are working the way uh, sunsets, sunrises, and childbirth works the way that it was designed for. Miracles of fabric, miracle fabrics, miracle detergents, and all that kind of stuff. I, I guess that's just marketing ploy, trying to make you think it's going to do something that's special, and it hardly ever does. But, um, but miracle, as far as the Bible is concerned, is the divine intervention into the ordinary course of nature. It's when God intervenes to change the laws of nature. Now, I want you to turn back with me to 2 Kings chapter 1 because there are some things that I want to, to, to go through and, and uh, um, point out, particularly in the lives of the two prophets, Elijah and Elisha, in the Old Testament pertaining to working of miracles. Now, both of these men had working of miracles probably as the most prevalent manifestation of the Spirit in their lives. And I want to, uh, I want to spend just a little bit of time this morning. Don't worry, I know it's Father's Day and restaurants are crowded. We'll beat the Baptist there. <laughs> but I want, to, uh, I want to bring out some things regarding working of miracles the bible is full of miracles and working of miracles is not the only way to produce a miracle that that's not a, a completely accurate way to say it but let me explain and i think you'll understand the gift of faith receives a miracle 
For example, uh, Daniel went to sleep in the lion's den. God shut the, the lion's mouths according to the things that he said and believed. He didn't do anything to produce a miracle. But the lions were defeated because of his faith. Well, Samson worked a miracle when he took a, the, the lion by his jaws and split him apart. He did something. Working of miracles is when God produces a miracle through you. The gift of faith is when God does a miracle for you. There's no action necessary on the part of the individual other than faith. And in many cases, it's a special measure of faith that, uh, that's in operation. But in, uh, in 2 Kings chapter 1, it's the story of Elijah. Elijah has uh, come on the scene in 1 Kings chapter 17 and declares to the king that it's not going to rain until he says so. And it goes three and a half years without raining. And so he and, uh, and the king, King Ahab, became uh, mortal enemies in the eyes of the king. He felt like that uh, uh, Elijah was his problem. The, the only problem that he really had, and he didn't realize that it was his own sin and rebellion against God that was causing the things that uh, that were coming upon him. Well, uh, Ahab has gone off the scene now, and there's uh, a new king in Second uh, Kings chapter 1. And it says, but let's begin reading in... Uh, well, where do we want to read? Well, I'm going to start reading in verse 7, but I'm going to have to back up and and tell you a little bit of the story. The new king has injured himself, and he sends certain messengers to the prophets of Baal to find out uh, what they say about whether or not he's going to recover and so forth. Well, Elijah meets the the messengers on the way and says, what are you going to Baal for? Isn't there a God in Israel? And he says, you're wasting your time going to Baal. Go back and tell the king he's going to die. And so the messengers uh, go back to the king, and the king says, did you ask the prophets of Baal what's going to happen? They said, well, we didn't have to. We met somebody else on the way, and he said that you're going to die, and so forth. And so we'll start in verse 7. It says, the king said unto them, what manner of man was he which came up to meet you and told you these words? And they answered him, he was a hairy man, and girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. And he said, and the king said, oh, that's Elijah. Then the king sent unto him a captain of 50 with his 50. In other words, there's a, a, a group of soldiers, squadron of soldiers, 50 of them with the captain that are sent to Elijah to bring him to the king. Then the king sent unto him a captain of 50 with his 50. And he went up to him and behold, he, he Elijah, sat up on top of a hill. And the captain spoke unto him and said, Thou man of God, the king has said, come down. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, If I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Also again, the king sent unto him another captain of 50 with his 50. And this captain says unto him, O man of God, thus hath the king said, Come down quickly. And Elijah answered and said unto them, If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Now, one of the things that uh, my message this morning is really very simple. And that is just talking to you, trying to point out to you the miracle working capacity of the God that you serve. I think in, uh, in too many cases, too many instances, we think of miracles as kind of a, yeah, God does miracles. Yeah, miracles happen. Jesus was certainly a miracle worker. And I've experienced miracles in my life on some scale at least, as most all of us have. But we we rarely stop to think about the power that God has made available, not just the power that he has, but the power that he's made available to the church to show the world who he is. And I personally believe 
You judge this for yourself. But I personally believe that at the, in the last days, God's going to raise up people to be prophets like in the old days. Prophets to speak to kings in the nations. Nobody's doing it now. This, uh, these two captains, they come with the attitude that they serve the king. They're serving the king. The most powerful man in all the land. And they've been sent to get this little hairy preacher. Gird about with a girdle. And the little preacher sits up on top of the hill and says, If I am a man of God, if God is the one whom I serve, you need to understand something. You're just working for the king. So fire comes down from heaven and consumes both squadrons. Now the third guy comes. It takes some people a little while to catch on, I guess. Verse 13 And the king sent again a captain of the third fifty. I want you to notice something about this king. He seems to be okay with all of his soldiers being burned up. I wonder if that speaks to leadership. Because we hear all the time what our new leaders and the politicians and the ones that want to be elected, all they're going to do for us. But when it comes down to it, they're in it for themselves. Many of them are, at least. It's hard to find one that's not. So the king sent again a captain of the third 50 with his 50. And the third captain of the 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah. And besought him and said unto him, O thou man of God, I pray thee, let my life and the life of these 50 thy servants be precious in your sight. Behold, there came fire down from heaven and burn up the two captains of the former fifties with their fifties. Therefore, let my life now be precious in your sight. And the angel of the Lord said unto Elijah, go down with him, be not afraid of him. And he arose and went down with him unto the king. In other words, the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, this is a guy I can work with. This is a guy that will report back to his king, the one that he serves. That this guy is approachable when you come on your knees. And so then Elijah tells him exactly what he told the messengers. He says to the king, you're going to die. Get your house in order. You're going to die. And he does. Oh, for the days. When God worked through men to show himself stronger than governments. I tell you this, folks, there's never been a day in the history of the world that is more needed than in our day. There's never been a day in the history of the world where world governments have been more controlled by the devil than our day. What does that mean for us? Well, in my thinking, it means the stage is set for God to show himself stronger than them. Now, I'm not divorced from the political process. I'm involved, always will be involved, always will vote. But I don't believe the answer for America is in politics. I might think differently if we had men and women that were standing up for God in politics. Now, I know I'm real close to stepping on some people's toes here, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to offend anybody. Oh, I haven't got started yet. <laughs> and I really don't intend to offend anybody. I mean, it, uh, it just kind of comes second nature to me, but it's, it's not my purpose to offend anybody. And if your ideas about your political candidate are right... I'll rejoice. 
If your guy gets in and makes changes for the good, I'll rejoice and count that as God just turning the back the hands of time a little bit to help us get the work done before Jesus comes. So I'm not in any way a doom and gloom type individual when it comes to the future of America. I just believe the future of America is God. I believe the answer for America is God. But in order for that to be right, in order for that to happen, it's going to take men and women of God willing to stand up and speak to that which is wrong. Well, chapter 2 of 2 Kings tells us about Elijah's home going. And it gives us some information about Elijah and Elisha that's particularly interesting to me because, well, let me say it this way. It's easy for me to understand God doing miracles that everybody knows about. It's easy for me to understand why God would do a miracle like the ones that we just saw where the captains of the 50 were burned up to show that God and his power rests upon his man, not the king. Okay, I get that. But what about miracles that happen that nobody else would know about? What does that speak to? To me, it speaks to God's willingness to show himself strong. And I think too often we discount God's willingness, not just his power. In a general sense, everybody knows God can do anything. Every Christian will agree that with God, nothing is impossible. Well, what good does that do anybody if you're not believing for him to do something for you? You know? So I think too often we discount the fact that God is willing and has shown himself time and time and time again willing to show his power on your behalf. Tells us about Elijah on his last day on the earth. He starts going out to certain places. And he tells Elisha, his servant, stay here while I go. But Elisha knows by the Spirit of God that this is his last day as do the other sons of the prophet that he comes across in the traveling he goes from place to place. It's not a secret that Elijah is going away. Now, let me say this as well. Elijah and Elisha are easy to confuse. I know a lot of times I get to thinking one of them did it and read up and realize it was the other one that did what I was thinking. There are a lot of similarities. A lot of the miracles that they did were very similar. They both multiplied oil for a widow. They both raised a widow's son from the dead. There were very similar aspects of what they did. But the two people, the two men themselves, were very different. Elijah comes on the scene out of nowhere. 1 Kings chapter 17 verse 1 says, Elijah the Tishbite says... It's not going to rain till I say so. We don't know where he came from. We don't know who he is. We don't even know what a Tishbite is. But he was one. Elisha, on the other hand, we've got a lot of information about where he came from. Elijah spent his public years of ministry, which were about, as near as we can figure, were about 12 years, isolated from everybody. Not so with Elisha. He was in the middle of everything. He was sought out by three different kings for counsel. Elijah was separate in in just about every manner of his life. This, uh, This girdle and mantle that it talks about was so unusual that that was the way that people described him so that, that he was recognized by what he wore. Not so with Elisha. Elijah was separated from the world. Elisha was mixed in with the people of the world. And some have speculated, and they may be right. There there are certainly some aspects of it that can fit. 
Some have speculated that Elijah is a type of the Old Testament law of Moses, the power of God under the law, and that Elisha represents the power of God on Jesus and therefore the church. Well, there are some similarities there. And there's, there's a lot of, or some points that you could pick, to, pick out and say, this is why that fits. And as such, a lot of Elijah's miracles had to do with judgment. Had to do with do right or else. Elisha had some of those. But his miracles were much more beneficent than Elijah's were. pointing to the same reality in Jesus' ministry where the miracles that he did, by and large, and the miracles of the New Testament that are spoken of in the book of Acts, by and large, have more to do with healing miracles than anything else. Working of miracles in the New Testament seems to produce more healings than they did in the Old. That's got to be a sign to us of God's compassion to help the individual. So Elijah is going off the scene. Elisha knows it. So do the sons of the prophet. And Elijah seems to be trying to get rid of Elisha. Now whether this is a test or he's really trying to get rid of him, we don't know. But Elisha will not separate himself from him no matter what. And he says on several different occasions, as my soul lives, I will not leave you. That would be, common day translation would be, you're going to have to kill me to make me go away. And so the time comes when Elijah finally says, well, what is it that you want? Why won't you do what I tell you to do? And Elisha says, well, I want a double portion of what's on you. And Elijah's first comment is, you've asked for a hard thing. So you got everybody, a lot of people want a double portion. Oh, Lord, give us a double portion. Elijah said, that's a tough thing to have. When I think about that for a minute, tough for who? It's not tough for God. But it's tough for the individual. I think, I think it's easy for us to want some of the blessings and some of the benefits and some of the power of God without counting the cost of the responsibility thereof. And I wonder if that's why there are much fewer of the people that can stand in those offices and withstand those offices today than there used to be under the law. I don't know. So anyway... Elijah says, well, you've asked for a hard thing, but if, you're, if you see me when I go, you can have it. So all of a sudden, the heavens open and the chariot comes down with fiery horses leading it. And the Bible says it separates Elijah and Elisha, rides right in between them. And Elisha cries out, the chariots of God and the horsemen thereof. Well, he apparently keeps his eyes on Elijah during the whole thing. This is significant because when supernatural things start taking place, folks, it's easy to watch them and get your eyes off the important things, which is God. So Elisha sees it, sees him go up into heaven. He's taken up into heaven by a whirlwind. I, I have no idea what kind of image this can conjures up for you but wow in my thinking and in my imagination wow well Elisha keeps his eyes on what's important and picks up the mantle now when he picks up the mantle he does exactly the same thing that Elijah did with it just before he left so let's read a little bit about this It says, uh, 
verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8. It says, And Elijah took his mantle. This is before the angels come down to get him. And Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither, so that they too went over on dry ground. And then it says, After Elisha sees Elijah go up into heaven, verse 13, he took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had also smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elijah went over. Now, Elisha's parting the Jordan River has significance because the sons of the prophets see him do it and they remark that the spirit of Elijah is now on Elisha. So we can say that God had a purpose in Elisha parting the water by identifying him as the next prophet to stand in Elijah's place. But let me ask you a question. Why did God allow Elijah to part the water? What was the significance there? Nobody's there to see it. He certainly doesn't have to prove to Elisha that the power of God is on him. Do you see where I'm going with this? Now, I'm a firm believer that God doesn't waste anything. When Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes, the Bible says there were 12 baskets full left over. Jesus told the disciples to gather up what was left. What was left. Now, a lot of faith people seem to operate under the, the attitude that God's the God that's more than enough, so it doesn't matter to waste anything. And they live their lives wasting things. God doesn't waste. Jesus was not a waster. Now, we don't know what he did with the 12 baskets full of stuff that was left over, but Jesus lived a lifestyle of giving to the poor in such a degree that every time Judas left the room, people assumed he went to give to the poor. He was the treasurer. So at the very least, they had 12 baskets full of stuff of food left over to give to the poor. But since God is not a waster, why did he allow a miracle to take place for Elijah that wasn't to prove anything? Now, folks, I can only come up with one answer, and that is because God is God. Now, I don't mean that in the sense that he does what he wants to do. Too many people think that and miss out on the things of God, miss out on the blessings of God that have been accomplished for us through the work of Jesus. That's not what I mean. What I mean is God is a God that doesn't mind the showing his power. God's a God that doesn't mind. He doesn't have a problem with it. Now, we may have a problem with it. We may have in our thinking a, a resistance to it. But God doesn't have a problem with showing himself strong. Even when it's just for one. So Elisha does and duplicates the same miracle again. He smacks the waters step by step. Hither and thither means step by step. He hits it and the waters departs or moves out of the way for him to stand on dry ground. He hits it and has room for another step. He hits it and has room for another step. All the way until he gets to the other side. Now, the, the sons of the prophets kind of show why God didn't pick them. Because after Elijah is taken up and Elisha relates the story, the sons of the prophets convince Elisha. He didn't want to do it, but they wouldn't let up. They said, let us send out a group to search for Elijah. Because it may be that the Spirit of the Lord dropped him out of that chariot and he's in the wilderness somewhere. That's what it says. So Elijah, or Elisha, excuse me, finally says, no, don't go, don't go. And they stay after him to such a degree that he finally gives up and says, well, go ahead and go. And then they come back and said, well, we couldn't find him. And Elisha says, well, you idiots. That's my translation, but basically that's what takes place. Now it says in verse 18, here's the next miracle that takes place in Elisha, uh, from Elisha. Or verse 19. It says, And the men of the city said unto Elisha, Behold, I pray you, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees. 
but the water is not, meaning very bad, and the ground is barren, which means it's not producing fruit. And Elisha said, bring me a new cruise. Now, a cruise is a vessel of some type. It can be a pitcher. It can be a bowl. We don't know exactly what it is. But he says, bring me a new dish. And put salt therein. And they brought it to him. And he went forth into the spring of the waters. And cast the salt in there. And said, thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters. There shall not be from thence any more death or barren land. So the waters were healed unto this day according to the saying of Elisha which he spake. Now can I ask you a question? What does throwing salt in water have anything to do with healing land that doesn't produce? In fact, salt water will kill growing things, plants and such. What I want you to see out of this one is that God is able... And apparently has no problem with changing the chemical composition of things here on this earth. You don't take water that's bad and make it good by putting salt in it. That'll just make it worse. Now the next thing that the Bible says takes place with Elisha is a little harsh or seems a little harsh. But it shows the power of God again. Verse 23. And he went up from thence unto Bethel. And as he was going by the way, there came forth little children out of the city and mocked him. And said unto him, Go up, thou bald head. Go up, thy bald head. Making fun of the preacher because he's bald. And he turned back and looked on them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And there came forth two she-bears out of the woods and tear forty and two children of them. And he went from thence to Mount Carmel and from thence he returned to Samaria. Folks, I want you to see something. And I believe it's instructive. And that is the power of God, the miracle working power of God, divine intervention into the ordinary course of nature sometimes brings judgment. Now, this has to mean something. For example, if it's just God's willingness to use his power, why didn't Elisha use the power of God, believe God to put hair on his head rather than kill 42 kids? Been just as easy for God. He didn't use the miracle working power of God to change his appearance, which is what they were making fun of. Because it speaks to the, to the condition of society. These children were teenagers. This is probably the first example we've got of a youth gang. Which means the parents weren't doing their job. Which means the curse would come upon the land. Which is the reason why Elisha did what he did. The Old Testament, this used to really get my, my son when he was young. The Old Testament, I told him one day he was doing some stuff that he shouldn't be doing. And so, uh, pretty common activity, actually. So, I said to him, I said, son, you know what the Bible says about young, young children that rebel against their parents? He said, no, what does it say? It says, take them out in the street and stone them. His eyes got big for a second and he said, but we don't live by the Old Testament anymore, Dad. <laughs> they do that at much anyway. <laughs> Chapter 3. King of Judah and King of Israel get together and decide they're going to go to war against an enemy, a common enemy. And um, the King of Judah is doing some right things. Jehoshaphat's his name. He's doing some right things, but he's not, uh, he's not following the Lord fully. But anyway, he gets taken up with uh, the idea that, uh, well, the, the Israelites are my kinsmen, and so when the king asked me to go to war with him against his enemy, then I should do it. 
he didn't consult with the Lord and got himself into trouble. And so it says that uh, the king of Israel came up with a plan for how they were going to do it, how they're going to go, uh, go around the, the, and flank the enemy, so to speak. And so it says they went three days into the wilderness. And um, now they're three days away from everything and there's no water for the, for the armies, no water for the animals and so forth. And so the king of Israel, being the idiot that he is, says, well, God must have planned it this way for us to die in the wilderness. Now, all they've done is followed his plan. But that's kind of the way that God gets the blame for everything when people's plans don't work. And so Jehoshaphat says, well, let's send to a prophet. Let's find the prophet of Israel or the prophet in the land and let him inquire of the Lord for us. And so they sent for Elisha. And Elisha says, verse 13, chapter 3, verse 13. And Elisha said unto the king of Israel, what have I to do with thee? Get thee to the prophets of your father, that means the prophets of Baal, and to the prophets of your mother. And the king of Israel said unto them, Nay, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. In other words, he's already decided God's against us. There's no hope for us. And Elisha says, As the Lord of hosts liveth, before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee nor see thee. I wouldn't even, even acknowledge your presence. Certainly not going to inquire of the Lord to get for you or for your benefit. But now, verse 15, bring me a minstrel. And it came to pass when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, thus saith the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. For thus saith the Lord, you shall not see wind, neither shall you see rain. Yet that valley shall be filled with water that you may drink both you and your cattle and your beasts. And this is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord. And he will deliver the Moabites also into your hand. Now the rest of the story says that they spent time digging. Now folks, you've got to realize that um, part of the miracle was obedience. In a land where there's no water for at least three days journey, that's not the place you want to start digging. Be like digging into concrete. But they dig ditches throughout this whole valley. And the Bible says the next morning that water came. It tells which direction it came from. And if you look at a map, there is no body of water for it to come from. And it came, the, the original language is such that it came like a tidal wave. Or as a tsunami would cause water to swell. And Elisha says specifically, water is more than three days away. That's drinking water. That's well water. There is no body of water. There's no lake. There's no ocean. There's no sea. For miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. And he said, but it's a simple thing for God to bring water where there, from a source that there isn't. It's a simple thing. Why would he say that? Why would Elisha point out in this miracle that God's going to do, this great work that he's going to do, what a simple thing it is for God to do the impossible? If it were not for God trying to get across to you and to me through the story, that there's nothing too hard for him. Remember in Genesis chapter 18, I believe it is, somewhere around Genesis 18, it's when Abraham is 99 years old. He's given up on the promise of a son, Isaac, being born. But God appears to him and says, this time next year you're going to have a son. And Abraham says, oh, not now. It's too long. I'm too old. It's too late. It can't happen now. Just let Ishmael live. He's about 12 now. Just let him live before you and let him be blessed. And God said, well, I will bless him because he's your son. But I will bring you the son of promise. And he brings to him information, a question that's 
really significant in my thinking. He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, folks, when we ask that question or when we make mention of it being asked to Abraham and Sarah, it's real easy to say, well, no, of course not. Nothing's too hard for the Lord. It's like I said, every Christian will agree on a mental level, intellectual level, that nothing's too hard for God. With God, all things are possible. But it's a real question that you need to really answer for yourself. Because I think a lot of Christians that, that will say that the Bible is true where it says with God nothing's impossible. For them, personally, individually, there are a lot of things that are too hard for God. And it's easy for that kind of mentality to creep up on us and take hold of us. And the only thing that can chase it off is for you to address some of these things, draw attention to them, face them, and address them and, and, and determine, wait a minute, that's not too hard for him. It may be too hard for what I think to be possible, but God's the one that changes chemical makeups and physical foundations of the earth. Where did he get the water from? Did he get it from anywhere or did it just appear? Did this, thing, did this water, this wall of water, travel hundreds of miles from somewhere? Well, we don't have any record of it in history. It's not like it wiped out anything on the way. Or did it just appear out of nowhere over the hill and then fill the valley with water? I don't have an answer. But whatever the answer is, whichever way you want to believe it, it's a light thing for God to do. It's a light thing for God to do. Well, it leads to the destruction of the Moabites because when the sun comes up and they see the water or the sun reflecting off the water, they, it looks red to them. And so they said, well, the Israelites are destroyed. So they go walking into camp. And the Israelites raise themselves up and defeat the enemy and cause them to flee. Because God made water out of nowhere. Or God brought water from unknown sources. We've talked about, uh, I think we made mention of in chapter 4 last week of, of how Elijah, uh, Elisha, excuse me, multiplied the oil for the widow of the prophet. He told her to get all the vessels and jars that she could and borrow from her neighbors and so forth. And the little bottle of oil that she had didn't run out until it filled all the jars and all the containers. And then she sold it and paid off the debt. Now I want you to look at another one over in chapter 4 about verse... uh, I'm skipping over some of these things just for the sake of time. But let's look at um, verse 38. It says, And Elisha came to Gilgal. This is chapter 4, verse 38. And Elisha came again to Gilgal, and there was a dearth, meaning a famine in the land. And the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, and he said unto the servant, Set on the great pot and seize pottage for the sons of the prophet. And one of them went out into the field to gather herbs, and found a wild vine, and gathered thereof a wild gourds, his lap full, and came and shred them into the pot of pottage, for they knew them not. In other words, there's such a famine going on, he's picking anything that's green out there to make soup. So they poured it out for the men to eat, and it came to pass that as they were eating of the pottage that they cried out and said, O thou man of God, there is death in the pot. There's something poisonous that they've cooked along with the stew. There's death in the pot, and they could not eat thereof. But Elisha says, Then bring meal. And he cast it into the pot, and he said, Pour out for the people that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. In other words, he says, throw meal in there and it will remove the poison. Now, folks, there is no meal out there that's the solution for poison. But again, God changed the chemical composition of the soup. We're talking about God doing things on a cellular level. 
We're talking about God taking the elements of the earth that he created and altering them. Look at the power of God. Let me... uh, Well, I want you to see one. Look with me over to to, uh, chapter 6, verse 18. Well, back up to verse 15. It says, And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? This is the story of where um, uh, the king of Syria, I believe it was, is uh, foiled in his plans to ambush the, the Israelites because Elisha sends to the king of Israel and says more than twice, we don't know how many more, but it says not once or twice, so several times at least, here are the, the, enemy, the plans of the enemy king. So the enemy king must, thinks we must have a traitor in our midst and somebody's given us away, but then one of the servants says, no, it's Elisha the prophet. He knows what you say in your bedchamber. So he says, all right, we'll send an army and let's go capture Elisha. How dumb can you be? The guy knows ahead of time what your plans are, so let's go capture him. So anyway, they wake up the next morning and the, the servant of Elisha sees the, the hillsides covered with the army of Syria. So as uh, he says, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And Elisha answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Now this is discerning of spirits. They're seeing into the spirit realm. They didn't just appear when his eyes were open. They were there all the time, and Elisha knew it. Now, how did he know it? Did he see them or just know it because of the, the truth of the word? We don't know. So it says, they came down to him. When they came down to him, Elisha prayed unto the Lord and said, Smite these people, I pray thee, with blindness. And he smote them with blindness according to the word of the Lord. Now, this is what I want you to see. Because the same thing happens in the New Testament. And that is... When Elisha prayed, he didn't try to run from the army of Syria. He let them come down. And when they came down, he says, okay, Lord, now smite them with blindness. This is not illness. This is not disease. This is God covering their eyes. Then Gehazi, the reason I know this is because God doesn't have sickness or disease. When Elisha prays and says, Lord, smite them with blindness... If he's talking about sickness or disease, where's God going to get the sickness and disease to answer that prayer? There is no sickness and disease in God. There is no imperfection in any type with God. The Bible says God is only good and can only do good because that's all he is. You realize sickness and disease, blindness or any other type of, of disease would be imperfection. There is no imperfection in God. Where would he get the imperfection to use? He'd have to go to the devil, wouldn't he? God's not in the habit of swapping swapping out with the devil. So this is not sickness and disease. This is something to cover their eyes, and he does. And so now they're blind. They can't see. And Elisha says, well, follow me, and I'll take you to the guys you want. So he takes them to the armies of Israel. They feed them. Their sight comes back to them when they're there. The covering is lifted over their eyes. The army of Israel feeds them, gives them food and water, and then sends them back home. And don't you know they had a report to make to the king of Syria? Now look with me over to Acts chapter 13. I know I'm out of time here, and and, and I'm not really sure if I got to where I wanted to go here. But let's, let's close with a couple, of, a couple of points. Acts chapter 13 tells us the story of Paul on his first missionary journey. He and Barnabas have been separated under the work of the Lord.
And it says one of the first places they go to, verse 6, when they had gone to the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man, who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elimus the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on them and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, And thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. This is not sickness and disease. This is from God. This is not sickness and disease. Couldn't be. Because God doesn't have any. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead them by the hand. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. Look with me also to Acts chapter 5. We know the power of God is displayed and the miracle working power of God is displayed time and time again to deliver the people of Israel. We know the power of God is shown in the New Testament to deliver the the church from the hands of the enemy. Let's read the story of Ananias and Sapphira real, real quick. Verse 1, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. So there, the previous chapter tells us about how the Barnabas sold some land and gave it to the church, and it was uh, an act of obedience on his part that opened the door for him to step into the office that God had for him. He gained a place of prominence in the church. Well, that seems to be what Ananias and Sapphira are after too. So they decided to lie to the, to the, they conspire together to lie to the church leadership about the money they're giving from the land that they sold. Verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? You have not lied unto, unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young men arose, wound him up, and carried him out and buried him. Now what was this? It's a working of miracles. But notice the working of miracles was not just judgment on Ananias, but protection for the church. The church is in a babyhood stage. Of growth and development. Be the worst thing in the world to get somebody in leadership with the wrong motives. But the end result is still the same, and that is Ananias falls dead. Three hours later, Sapphira comes in, takes her longer to do her hair. And notice the church service is still going three hours later. People complain about me preaching long. So when she comes in, verse 8, she didn't know what was going on. Nobody ran to her and gossiped about your husband fell dead because he lied to the Holy Ghost. So Peter answered and said unto her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yeah, that's how much it was. Then Peter said unto her, how is it that you have agreed together to tempt the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which are buried, have buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. And she fell down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in, found her dead, and carried her forth, buried her by her husband. I doubt very seriously if anybody came to church that day scheduled for burial detail. Now, folks, there's got to be something more going on here than just what's on the surface. If people fell dead in church for lying to the Holy Ghost, you'd have to have churches, church sanctuaries attached to mortuaries. Now, there's something else going on here. He's trying to protect the church in its 
early stages of development. But the, but the point is still the same, and that is working of miracles also applies to judgment. Both Old Testament and New Testament. It would be real nice, comfortable for us to say, well, the judgment part was under the Old Testament but not under the New. The Bible doesn't bear that out. Now here we see example after example where things change in a miraculous way by using salt, sticks, an iron axe head floats because Elisha throws a stick into the water. Which means God has to change the, the physical nature of the axe head itself to cause it to float for whatever reason. Multiplying food to feed the sons of the prophets. Same as Jesus did multiplying the loaves and the fishes. How did that happen? Is God making more stuff? I don't have an answer. But I know he's changing the laws of nature. What I want you to see out of this, folks, is that this temporal world is truly subject to change. Now, I want you to look with me to one scripture, or, or I'll turn there. I don't, it, you don't have to. I'll just read it to you if you want me to. But in Isaiah chapter 10, and let me close with this. Isaiah chapter 10, what is it that makes these things to occur? I'm not saying how do we produce miracles. There's no one-size-fits-all process for that. But there is one thing that all these miracles and every miracle that we have recorded in Scripture have in common. There is one thing. There's one thing that the the salt healing the water has in common with the meal healing the poison in the soup, which has has in common with the stick causing the iron axe head to float and so forth. And here it is. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 27, it says, And it come, shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder and his yoke from off thy neck. And the yoke, here's the last part of the phrase, is what I want you to see. And the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Now, in many of these examples that we looked at, many others, we, if we took the time, we could show you from Scripture too. In many of these examples, the, the, the yoke the burden, the hindrance were the physical laws of nature. The physical laws of nature can sometimes be a hindrance or a stop to the plan of God being accomplished and what you need for God's blessing to become a reality in your life. Those things, those physical laws of nature are not too big for God to handle. God made everything about this world to change. How many of you remember what you were doing seven years ago? 2009, I guess. Would that be right? Remember 2009? Do you realize that there is not one cell in your body that existed in 2009 God made the body to regenerate not one cell that was alive and the source of your existence in 2009 is still present in your body that's how subject to change this world is When Jesus walked on the water, what did he do? Did he change the physical composition of the water? Or was he changed? When Jesus turned the water into wine, the physical composition of the water was changed. How? We don't ever have record of Jesus or anybody else for that matter feeling a surge of power and then things happen. 
That's the way we'd like for it to be. I think that's, especially with all the superhero movies that are out nowadays and stuff, I think that's maybe the way that we envision certain things. But that even Naaman the Syrian thought that's the way Elisha would come and heal him. He'd come out and strike his hand over the place. Well, we'd like to think that God puts the power in our hands even to use it for a short period of time. But it never works like that. The power is always his. The anointing is ours. The anointing to do the work, to perform the miracle, is what God manifests. And so the miracle is produced. The yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. I don't know what yokes you're facing in your life. There may be different ones than what I'm facing. Yokes you face today that hinder you from receiving or walking in all the fullness of God's plan for your life may be different from the ones you face tomorrow. But whatever they are, whatever you ever encounter, according to the scripture, is destroyed because of the anointing. God is not afraid to use his power for your behalf. And he hadn't forgotten how to speak to kings and the nations. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. I've done what you told me to do, Lord. And I pray that the words that have been spoken are a seed that you cause to grow up in our spirits. So that we would see and that we would know, that we'd realize the awesomeness of your power and your willingness to use it to further your plans for your people. Father, we thank you specifically for working miracles in the body of Christ. We thank you specifically that working of miracles will be in operation so that the world will see and know that you haven't forgotten how to change the laws of nature. In the olden days, Father, fire fell from heaven. Let fire fall from heaven again. In the olden days, a mist came around the people's eyes that withstood you. Let that be again. In the olden days, people's motives were exposed for the benefit of the church. Let that be again. Work your miracles, Father. Not according to our plans or our purposes, but according to your own. Father, raise up prophets, even as in the days of old. Those that can speak to kings and to nations in the miracle working power of God. Father, deliver us from these so called prophets who claim to have your words and have them not. Those upon whom is no power. But bring us back to the real thing. Father, send the rain. Send the rain. A moving of the Spirit of God. To reach the multitudes. To reach the lost. We don't need any more church programs, Father. We don't need any more outreach plans. We need the rain. 
We need signs and wonders that men cannot refute or explain away. Cause the church to be a demonstration of your power and your love in these last days. Send the rain, Lord. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for moving among us. Thank you for moving for us. But most of all, thank you for moving through us. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Let's all stand together, please. Folks, I know I say the same thing over and over and over again. I'm aware that I'm always talking about and praying for the rain. And let me tell you something about that. If God has me, and it's not my idea, it's got to be Him. If God's got me talking about that all the time, if he's got me praying for that all the time and doesn't do it, then he's dealt unfairly with me as the pastor and you as the congregation. I don't believe he's unfair. So the other side of that is it must mean that he's trying to get us ready. Amen. Amen. Let's lift our hands and thank you. Lord, thank you for the rain. Thank you for the outpouring of the Spirit of God, the manifestation of the Spirit. Thank you for the rain. Thank you that the church is a church of power. Open our eyes to the power that resides within us, Father. Cause us to see and know. The exceeding greatness of your power that works in us as believers. We're not asking for more power, Lord. We're asking you to show us what we've got. Hallelujah. 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 If we're right about what God has ahead and in store, then the most important thing in the world, in our lives, is to be ready for it. What a tragedy it will be for those who are not ready and miss out on what God's doing. Because He won't wait for them. Thank God He won't have to wait for us. Amen? Amen. Well, let me remind you about the service tonight. John Romick is going to be ministering in healing school. And let me also remind you about the copy and the, the materials that they have back on the table at the back. Go buy these things up for them. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day, and we'll see you this evening.